horrible strike that took place on the maternity hospital in Mariupol recently, we all would want to see this bot to an end, but you're not going to achieve that with a no-fly zone. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, bringing you international perspectives, opinions and views about the United States. I'm going to talk again in this episode, like I did in the last two, about the situation in Ukraine. And particularly, I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of the Biden administration and the Biden administration's foreign policy. How this crisis has fit into that foreign policy and what it means for it in the future, and also assess how well I think the Biden administration has done in responding to the crisis in Ukraine. I've been somewhat critical of them in previous episodes of this podcast. I think there were some situations the administration didn't handle so well, such as the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But I think in general they've done, at a tactical level at least, a pretty good job here. So I want to talk about that. But then also talk as well about the big kind of unanswered strategic questions about the future as well. You know, what, where is this crisis going and, and what can the Biden administration do to steer it in the best direction possible? I don't know about you, but ever since this crisis began, I'm finding that I'm just reevaluating a lot of things that I do in my day-to-day life and, and the things that I place value on. I've especially been sat here in Europe, just seeing this unfold so close to where I live in the Netherlands. And it's just really, you know, it, it, it makes you think a lot of things about the fragility of life and the fragility of this relatively peaceful time that we've lived through over the past few decades in, in Europe, at least. Of course, it's not been true in other parts of the world, but in Europe, we've had, you know, a couple of decades now of seeming kind of like a holiday from this kind of geopolitical competition. And so, you know, I've, I've been rethinking a lot of things and it, it's also made me think a little bit about this podcast as well. And Sometimes it it doesn't feel right to discuss such a horrific event from such a narrow perspective of kind of what does this mean for the US, what does this mean for American foreign policy when first and foremost it's just a tremendous horrible human tragedy that's unfolding actually very close to my doorstep. But I do think that questions like this are important to think about, actually, because, you know, the, the situation in Ukraine is absolutely atrocious, but it could get much, much worse when we're thinking about relations between America and Russia, which is a really important part of this overall crisis. This is a, you know, a relationship that could ultimately end up producing a nuclear war which brings an end to human civilization on planet earth and that's an incredibly scary thing and even if it might seem a little bit distant a little bit dispassionate a little bit inappropriate at this time to be thinking about this in terms of you know the 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 chessboard of geopolitics and the ups and downs of politics for the Biden administration. Ultimately, we need to understand these things if we're understanding where this crisis is going and what it means for humanity's future. 
So that's what I'm going to focus on in this episode. I think you already day by day have a good grasp on the course of the war and the latest events. So I'm going to step back and try to look a little bit at this bigger picture. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, then I'd really appreciate it if you spread the word on social media or somewhere else. Tell a couple of friends about America Explained. Help to support us and and help me to bring you more content that hopefully you're going to enjoy in the future as well. So when we think about the place of this war in the Biden administration's foreign policy and, and, and what this means for it, I think it's important, first of all, to say straight away that this really, really wasn't the plan for the Biden administration. They did not intend to have so much of their attention fixed on Europe at this time and on Russia. You might actually argue that that, that's part of the problem over the last decade or so that successive American administrations have wanted to de-emphasize Europe and re-emphasize China. So this was definitely true of the Biden administration. They made it very clear from the beginning that their focus was on China, that they wanted to continue this so-called pivot to Asia, which began under the Obama administration. You can, like an easy way to to see this is that you can look at the interim national security strategy that the Biden administration published some time ago. It mentions China three times as often as it mentions Russia. And it's pretty clear that Russia was kind of an afterthought in this document. Something that I've remarked on in this podcast before is that it's actually been quite incredible the degree to which the Biden administration has framed almost everything that it does around China, particularly over the first six or eight months. So even domestic policy priorities that Biden was pursuing, he would often frame them as necessary for competition with China. So one really good example is that he gave a speech at a childcare center in Connecticut sometime last year. And he's in this childcare center talking about the importance of America providing daycare for middle-class families. And he starts talking about China and great power competition and saying that if we don't have better daycare, then how can we compete economically with China? So they were really drawing links between all aspects of their domestic agenda and this competition with China. And meanwhile, Russia was really, as I say, just more of an afterthought. That's not to say that they didn't have a policy towards Russia. So... Um, Last summer, the Biden administration kicked off what it called a strategic stability dialogue with Russia, which it said was aimed at coming up with a situation where there would be predictability in the relationship between the US and Russia, and particularly that they would work on arms control issues and reducing the risk of nuclear war. It won't come as any surprise to you if I say that that really did not work out. Russia is far from predictable, as we've seen by its invasion of Ukraine, and the risk of nuclear war today is, I would argue, among the highest that it's ever been since the end of the Second World War. It really turned out that Russia had a whole set of grievances that it wanted addressed by America, which went way beyond this narrow set of issues that were covered by the Strategic Stability Dialogue, and they had no intention of becoming predictable or stable. Clearly, Putin believes that by raising the stakes, he could force concessions from the West and from America. But the Biden administration just really, over the course of 2021, I think, didn't see this coming, didn't think that this was the the way things were going, and, and they were still focused on this shift towards China. 
Another aspect of Biden's foreign policy, which the, the the outbreak of this conflict really messes with, is that Biden had this idea of a foreign policy for the middle class. So the idea basically was that he wanted to prove to the average American voter, particularly voters who were disillusioned with globalization, these kind of working class and middle class voters who are believed to have voted for Donald Trump because they were dissatisfied with global trade agreements and, and outsourcing of jobs and things of this nature. Biden wanted a foreign policy that would prove to these Americans that globalization could work for them. And in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, when the US economy has had all sorts of problems, particularly inflation, this really meant first and foremost that they wanted to have stable economic relations with other important countries in the world to avoid kind of big economic shocks that were going to, you know, hit middle-class voters in their checkbook and make them feel less well-off, make them feel less economically stable, and perhaps then make them think about voting for someone like Donald Trump again, someone who's really made standing against globalization, standing against the realities of the global economy, core to his political brand. This policy was already looking in kind of bad shape because although the US economy has recovered in some ways really, really well from the coronavirus pandemic and economic shock, it's still suffering from really high inflation, which is making many American consumers really dissatisfied with the state of the economy right now. The situation that's unfolding right now in Ukraine is going to make this problem worse. The, as, as you've seen, so many of the measures that Western countries have imposed on Russia over the last month have been about cutting Russia off from the global economy making it harder for Russia to trade with the outside world and invest with the outside world. This has gone to a really, really huge extent. So it's in some ways, I would argue, unprecedented in the modern period, at least, the extent to which the Russian economy has just been surgically cut off from the global economy. Now, you can't do that to a country that, although it's nowhere near as, as large as America or China economically, this is still a major world economy that's now just basically been detached from the global economy. That's going to impact global growth. It's going to impact global economic conditions. It's going to cause inflation to go up in America as well. So this has a, a political price for the Biden administration, one that they're probably going to pay later this year in the midterms. And it makes it much easier again for Republicans to attack them over this issue of inflation. So this goal of Biden's foreign policy of bringing about stable, safe, predictable global economic conditions has again really been hit hard by this situation in Ukraine. It's fair to say for these two reasons, the fact they wanted to focus on China and the fact that they wanted to prioritize a stable global economy, that this is really not the sort of crisis that the Biden administration wanted to deal with right now. It's not at all what they wanted. But given that we are in this situation, how have they handled it? Well, that's something I'm going to talk about after the break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So I think the Biden administration's handling of the crisis in Ukraine can be praised in a lot of ways. I've been critical of the administration before, so have many other people, particularly during Afghan withdrawal 
also during the rollout of the AUKUS agreement between America and the UK and Australia, this this defense pact that they unfolded in the Asia-Pacific last year. And I think that in, in these two instances, we saw a couple of problems with the Biden administration's policymaking process. They really weren't working as closely with allies as they, as they could have been. There were many, many complaints from allies about not getting enough information, not being consulted. And I think this itself was a symptom of a kind of shoddy policymaking process where the people who were responsible for connecting all of the dots and making sure that everyone was on the same page, both within US government agencies and then also abroad in foreign capitals, they just really didn't seem to be on top of that process. And, it, and it, there was a feeling that it was all a bit shoddy, a little bit kind of fly by night and that they were making it up as they go along. That certainly has not happened here at all. So the administration has done a great job of coordinating both internally within the foreign policy bureaucracy, but also more importantly with allies as well, and getting everybody on the same page to isolate and to punish Russia. They really worked hard in the month or so in the run-up to this war to make sure that when it was launched, everybody among the Western alliance was on the same page from the beginning. And the result of that has been clear to see. So we've seen these absolutely brutal, devastating sanctions imposed against Russia. They've gone far beyond what most outside observers were predicting before the conflict started. We've seen arms shipments that keep going to Ukraine. So many, many countries in Western Europe and, and beyond Western Europe as well have committed arms to send to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians defend themselves against this Russian aggression. And we've also seen a really quite amazing diplomatic solidarity as well. That was something that before the conflict started, many people, myself included, and I'll put my hand up and say that I was wrong about this, that I thought that there would be many, many more fractures within the Western alliance. I think one reason that it unfolded this way is because the Ukrainians have put up such spirited and effective resistance. And the Russian campaign has, has so far seemed quite incompetent and hasn't really unfolded in the way that many people anticipated. And that, I think, created space for European governments to kind of look at this situation and really think about it and think about what side they wanted to be on. Had the Russians achieved a really quick victory, then I think that we might have seen some European governments start to argue that now this has happened, there's nothing we can do about it. So really, the important thing is to be conciliatory towards Russia and, and figure out a way that we can continue to live with Russia in the future. But what actually happened is that we got this really, really unified aggressive response that's made it clear to Russia that in Europe at least it has no support for what it's doing nobody's going to downplay this in the in the interest of just keeping relations with Russia good for the sake of it Russia's really really burned its bridges and that was wasn't something that just happened of course European enthusiasm the European desire to do this helped but the Biden administration's coordination really, really made this happen. And I think the fact that America was out front warning about this invasion and coordinating allies wasn't just tactically important, just, just to make sure that this thing unfolded in a certain way. It was also a concrete display of strong, assertive, competent American leadership, which could be trusted. This was really important, I think, after Trump did so much to burn America's political capital, particularly in Europe. 
he was a president who could not at all be trusted to be at the forefront of the Atlantic Alliance. This is the president who said many times he wanted to withdraw from NATO, questioned even the reason for NATO's existence. And I think it was important for the Europeans to see Biden back in that chair, putting forward a vision of strong American leadership. And so it's really, I think, incalculable the, the benefit of that. And it's really important, I think, to say that it could have worked out so so very differently if Trump had been in that chair instead. Another thing the Biden administration did was that they shared intelligence information before the crisis in a way that really made everyone in the world aware of what Russia was doing. So they predicted so much of what subsequently happened from the fact that Russia carried out these false flag attacks and then attributed to the Ukrainians, the manner of the invasion, the goals of the invasion. All of this is stuff that the Biden administration had had told us about beforehand. I think that this was important not so much because it impacted Russia's behavior. I mean, Russia just went ahead and did what the US intelligence predicted they were going to do anyway. But I think it really helped to shape the narrative before the conflict. if, If you remember, all we were really hearing about before the conflict was, is Russia going to do this or are they not going to do it? And the Americans were very strongly saying, yes, they are. When that proved to be true, when it, it was proved that the Americans were right about that. I think it made a really big difference because then there was no other narrative that could take hold here. There was no other explanation of what was happening other than the fact that this was just naked Russian aggression, exactly of the kind that America had predicted. So I think that they really helped to set up this dominance of the information space that we're seeing right now, or also as the conflict is continuing, where nobody in any media bubble or social media bubble that I'm aware of, except very, very, very marginal people, is seriously saying that this is, you know, this isn't a horrible act of Russian aggression to which a Western response is necessary. So I think America really helped to set up the narrative here as well. The final thing that I think the administration's done really well is that they've kept their cool. So I think it's really important that the administration ruled out a no-fly zone and is sticking to that position. We shouldn't just take a no-fly zone as something that's put forward by cranks and marginal people. It actually has some very, very prominent supporters, including a former commander of NATO, General Philip Breedlove, now retired. Kurt Volker, who's a former American ambassador to NATO, is also in favor of the idea. And an administration that was made up more of liberal hawks, people like, say, Samantha Power, people who have served in recent administrations, so Samantha Power was in the Obama administration, she was very, very much in favor of humanitarian intervention, very much in favor of using American military power for humanitarian aims. An administration like this might have taken the idea seriously. I think that it would have been really dangerous to do that, you know, that this this no-fly zone discourse can be dangerous if it gets out of control, because it can make Russia feel threatened and perhaps make Russia contemplate some sort of preemptive action against NATO. The other thing that I think is is often missed out of this no-fly zone discourse, but which is one reason why I'm glad that the Biden administration has kept its head about it, is that actually there's not really that much evidence that a no-fly zone is going to do much to improve the humanitarian situation within Ukraine. The Russian military generally relies much, much more on ground-based weapons than it does on jets, like fighters and bombers. So you could clear the skies of Russian planes, and that's 
still not going to stop these scenes that we're seeing unfolding right now in cities like Mariupol, where horrendous, horrible harm has been inflicted on civilians. You know, stuff that is bringing me to the verge of tears on a nearly daily basis, particularly when it's involving children and mothers and this horrible strike that took place on the maternity hospital in Mariupol recently. We all would want to see this brought to an end, but you're not going to achieve that with a no-fly zone. To actually stop the Russians from raining this artillery down on those Ukrainian cities, you need to target their ground-based systems, and you cannot do that without starting a war with Russia. I think many people who propose this idea of a no-fly zone, that they're not idiots, they know this, they, they see it perhaps as the first step in a process of escalation that they actually want to see happen. But I continue to think that escalating this conflict to the point where it might lead to a nuclear war between the US and Russia is just really not the right thing to do. So rejecting a no-fly zone was a good move on the part of the administration. The same thing can be said as well about the fact that the administration refused to raise its nuclear alert status in response to Russia doing the same thing. It also delayed an ICBM test, which had long been scheduled, but which could have been viewed as provocative by the Russians. I think the fact that the Biden administration hasn't felt the need to swagger irresponsibly and throw around loose talk about nuclear weapons has been really, really important, again, in making sure that the, this, this conflict doesn't go nuclear. Just imagine what Donald Trump would have been doing in this situation. He threatened, as you may remember, to engulf North Korea in fire and fury. If he was doing the same thing right now, that would be incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So it's good that the administration is taking a responsible attitude towards this as well. So these are some ways that I think the administration has done well tactically and that they've, you know, day by day, they've been dealing with this crisis quite well. But I do have some concerns about the longer term and about the strategic picture here. And that's what I'm going to talk to after this short break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. So when we think about where this crisis is going, how it's going to end, I think it's really notable now that nobody can really tell you how this is going to end. There's not any particular theory even that I see of how US foreign policy is producing a set of pressures on Russia and following particular actions that could bring this conflict to a conclusion. I think that before the war, something that I've talked about in a previous episode of this podcast, the Biden administration arguably didn't get creative and brave enough in its diplomacy to try to stop it. And you could say that the same thing is is happening right now, although I also do think that there's a limit to how much we can criticize the administration about this, because really this war is in its early stages and, and we need to see what happens. But what does worry me is that I think that in the West, we've just kind of log rolled automatically towards these really, really harsh penalties that we've inflicted on Russia, on the Russian people and the Russian economy without necessarily linking them to any kind of strategic outcome. So the plan can sometimes seem to be stage one, inflict enormous pain on Russia, stage two, question mark, 
stage three piece in our time. But we don't know what that stage two is. Like, what? how do we link these actions that we're taking to isolate and punish Russia to an outcome that we want. And of course, these are early days, like I said, and we're mainly reacting to events right now. But in the long run, we need to share this small and fragile planet with Russia. We need a way of living together with Russia. A Russia that's cut off from the world and that hates the outside world is not going to be conducive to that. So hopefully, behind the scenes, the Allies have been clear to Russia about what they need to do in order to get the sanctions lifted. That's how sanctions ideally should work as a tool of policy. You impose them on a country, but then you make clear to that country if you take the following actions, such as, for instance, withdrawing forces from Ukraine, then those sanctions will be lifted. The alternative and, and not at all so good way of using sanctions is just to use them in a way that makes ourselves feel better. So if we are just going to now intend to keep these sanctions on Russia indefinitely because it makes us feel better about punishing Russia, so even if tomorrow Russia withdrew from Ukraine, we kept the sanctions on because, you know, the, 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 Russians, the Russian regime have proven that they're bad people. That's actually not a smart way of using sanctions because although, you know, they're not going to achieve anything that way, you're not using them in service of some sort of goal. We need to make sure that there's a clear relationship in the mind of Putin between these sanctions and this isolation which he wants to go away and what he needs to do in order to make that happen. And hopefully that's going to play out eventually in peace talks between the Russians and the Ukrainians and we can bring an end to this war using this pressure. But I do wonder now whether Putin's not going to just plow ahead the sanctions are there, maybe he thinks they're never going to be lifted, so now he may as well just double down on doing whatever he wants, because eventually he gets to a point where he thinks, well, there's nothing more they can do to me, so I may as well just continue. So we have to be really careful that we use the sanctions and other forms of pressure on Russia smartly and as a way of bringing about outcomes that we want. That becomes a little bit difficult because US domestic politics is going to play into this as well. The US Congress can also impose sanctions, and as the midterms approach later this year, there's going to be a lot of one-upmanship in Congress of various people trying to prove that they're tougher on Russia than everyone else. So there's a really good chance that we're going to get additional strong sanctions packages coming out of Congress, which are driven more by domestic politics, more by the needs of particular Congress people to look tough than they are by the strategic goals of the Biden administration. But then Biden's going to risk looking weak and, and suffering in those midterms if he doesn't go along. This kind of increases the tendency towards the sanctions being a tool of catharsis, of making ourselves feel better rather than they are strategy. But we really, really need to, to guard against that. Ultimately, a settlement with Russia, which enables us to pull back from this brink, and let me remind you again that it's a nuclear brink, a very, very dangerous place to be, to get back from here, we're ultimately going to require compromise. And I think it's going to be difficult for Western publics to accept some kind of compromise settlement with Russia that brings this conflict to a close and helps us tamp down the risk of nuclear holocaust. 
the administration needs to be really, really in the saddle, really on top of its narrative and its its explanations to the public of where this is going and what kind of compromises could bring this conflict to an end. And I think we really have to hope that, that they're capable of doing that because the world is currently hurtling in a very, very dangerous direction. I've talked a little bit on previous episodes of how worried I am of the various forms of escalation risk that exist here. And it's going to require more than just smart tactics to turn this around. You know, to reiterate, this isn't a crisis that the administration wanted or prepared for but now they're in it. We really need to see some smart strategy from them and smart politics at home as well to steer the world or help steer the world through this crisis. It's going to require a really creative vision and a willingness to compromise when the time is right. And an awful lot's at stake, both for the people of Ukraine and people all over the world as well. So those are my thoughts right now on how the Biden administration's been handling this crisis and, and what they need to be thinking about in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of America Explained. If so, please spread the word and tune in again in a couple of weeks when I'll be back with another installment. Bye for now. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.